Imagine, imagine you're sitting in the audience and you work in a large company, because this is the question I continuously ask one of my clients. Imagine some venture capitalist stands here and say, I want you to leave your company now, work for me, and the first thing I want you to do is seize the market and get rid of your current employer. Wipe them out. And when I ask, when I have this in a seminar or I stand in a board, you always see people looking very terrified, like, oh my God, I can't do that, I'm lawyer. I said, no, 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 imagine. You don't have to do it, imagine. The second I asked them, so would you know what you would do? And they would say, um, bam, bam. And finally, when they start talking, they realize they would hit their current company on the places where it is the weakest, the most vulnerable, the less, most defended, and which is mostly, by the way, with a customer. Now, and then, how they'll do it, they make it very complex. So I always come with that story. I said, well, let's go to Africa. Let's go to the African plain. I mean, this is inspired by Old of All Gorge, so I like to stay in Serengeti anyway. Two guys are walking around on the plane. They have a nice day, it's sunny, and suddenly this cheetah comes up. And they start running for their life. And so one of these guys stops. Starts tying his shoelaces, and the other guy said, what are you doing? You don't really think you can outrun the cheetah. I don't need to outrun the cheetah. I need to outrun you. And the whole point is, we look at competition and innovation that we need to do something grand and superb. But the reality is, even the most biggest innovations were just a little quantum leap to let your competitor or those in your industry that would obstruct you, dealing with the cheetah, to buy your time. Steve Jobs didn't come in and say, oh, I have a grand idea. It went actually really gradual. I mean, first there was an iPod, then there was an iTunes store, then there came an iPhone that made use of the iTunes store, and suddenly you had an infrastructure and an ecosystem that could deliver music and that could deliver apps. And then there came an iPad, and you could deliver more apps, and you could deliver movies and books. The whole power of Jobs was actually the ecosystem. And if you in 2000 had asked people like, oh, is it cool that Apple has an iTunes store and an ecosystem? Most of you would have said, if you were born then yet, you would have said, nah. But the reality is, the cool idea doesn't seem cool when it happens. It becomes cool when you capitalize it. So these two guys have been running. Now let's go back to the thought experiment. If you are sitting here and you launch a new business, if you're not working for a company yet, but you know who your competitor is already, how would you take them out? If you tell me I have a great idea and I have no competition, then you have no market. Because if there's no competition, there is no market. So what we did, we surveyed around 3,000 business and IT executives last year, and we se selected 900 out of them. We had this like, how do companies compete on information? Which companies are really the leaders? And from those 900 leaders around the world, we asked them what kept them away at night. We also asked them things that were, where we knew the answer were going to be lies, blatant lies, or total denial. You know, denial is not only a river in Egypt. And while we did that, we found a series of things that executives had in common. So let's go there. Five principles we're going to start with, we're going to come back with. Principle number one, everyone creates value. Whether you're a company, an institution, a government, a school. We all create value. The question is, do we create value for ourselves? Or do we only create value for others? If we pay taxes, we pay rent. Right, but we don't make money, we definitely create value for others, we just don't do it for ourselves, sadly enough. Second is analytics trump gut instinct. Facts are more important than your gut feeling. 
Number three, a really important one, data sharing is the new black. For those of you who aren't comfortable in English, right, the, the new black means the latest trend, the most important time, the topic. At this moment, it's more important to share data than to have it yourself. It's more important to use other people's data than just have your own stuff. The fourth is social data is becoming part of your production line. And the last is all this stuff about B2B and B2C and B2Whatever, it's gone. Everything is becoming personal. So let's go to this principle. Principle number one, we all create value. Jack Welch spends his post-General Electric career to explain everybody, together with his former Harvard Business Review editor wife, that shareholder value is not a goal. It's a result. And you'll be, and maybe you will find that you know, you're young and you're idealistic and you're happy and you find it very normal. The sad thing is when you look to the top 500, the Fortune 500, the bulk of those companies see quarterly shareholder results as a goal. And they sacrifice the innovation on that. The point is, I don't create value by sacrificing everything to make my shareholders happy. If I create value for my customers, my only source of profit, if I feel create value for my employees, who therefore make sure I keep and retain, I get, keep and retain customers. If I create value for my suppliers so I can be the most efficient, cheapest, fastest, best in delivering to my customers, I create value for them and therefore for myself and therefore for my shareholders. This seems like a really easy principle. It's the first that senior management sacrifices when it becomes senior management, the rat race. Why do you think so many family-driven family-based companies don't want to go to the stock exchange. We do it by the decisions we take, the value we create, and the value we deliver. Management that only makes decisions and doesn't say how they will create and deliver the value. I'm sure there are a lot of them in the world, but it's not a sustainable thing. So let's go to digitization of society. How do we create value in today's society? Number one, 1997, there once was a ruling world champion chess, Garry Kasparov, and he got beaten by a piece of technology. Now, these smiling people, you might call them nerds, I call them my colleagues, they were very happy that day because it wasn't about technology. It was the first time that a piece of technology was able to understand all the options a human being could take and be faster, better, and smarter than one of the best of the human specimens in those decisions. It was the first time that technology showed it could actually do something faster and better than we did without us continuously touching it. Second thing, 2005, and I know the line's a little bit difficult, but this is St. Peter's Square. This is Benedict, for those of you that have a religious moment, this is Pope Benedict being inaugurated. And you'll see here, one smartphone making a picture. This is 2013, the same St. Peter's Square. This is eight years. Where were you eight years ago? Especially the students here. Where were you eight years ago? How old were you? What did you do? Because the people that are now eight years younger than you are today, sir, they think of you as the old geezers in eight years. Like, oh, look at those guys. Come on. They had smartphones. They didn't even have telepathic whatevers, right? This is how the world has digitized. In 2007, everybody said, I don't know, I want an iPhone. Who doesn't have a smartphone in this room? 
That's totally okay. I respect that, by the way. I totally respect that. I even respect it more that you dare to share it. Would you mind sharing where you did that, sir? Why do you still have? Why don't you have a smartphone? And that's a really conscious decision. Thank you for sharing that. So, so, and this is the point, right? Digitization of society also means that we think that data can give us the answer where human contact should be. Let's go to another point. Let's go to the further digitization. These are two people. This is a game show in America called Jeopardy. This is Valentine's Day 2011. For the first time in the 40-year history of a knowledge show, a quiz, a quiz where you get the answer, you need to get the question. And for doing that, you need to get some context. This is a guy who won 74 times subsequently in a row in a 40 year history. This is the guy that won most money ever in an American game show and two Camaros. Don't know why two, he won them. This is not a supercomputer, but 2800 PlayStations stacked together. So off the shelf technology with Linux, off the shelf technology, open source, and 3000 proprietary mathematical algorithms that understand language, that understand text, that read knowledge and answer a question faster than these other two did. We're gonna come back on that. We call this cognitive technology. The most important of cognitive technology is you don't program it anymore. So everybody who spent the last five years in Java, HTML5, JSON, those kind of techy stuff, good luck making apps. So, Data changes everything. Let's go back to the principles. Companies in 2007, 2011, so the most economical, difficult period in the last 40 years, companies that actually used predictive analytics, and I'll come back to the definition in a second, and they were consistent over multiple distribution channels, made five times more money than their lesser significant peers in the industry. We have a whole study of that, and I'll tweet afterwards the link so you guys get a free copy. What's more important, with predictive analytics, we mean you don't extrapolate. I'm going to come back on that, but it means I really look forward. Normal analytic models say something happens now, and people who buy this code like that belt. That's extrapolation, because 45 people buy, bought this code with this belt, you think there's a correlation. Problem is correlation is not causality. You know, there's a, I can give you... An Three minutes of model that gives the correlation between the pink wings on the South Pole and the profit of IBM. There's no causality, but man, there's a correlation there. If I take extrapolation, I will make a model that's based on the data that I have, and I verify the model with the data that I have. So I will predict that Amsterdam at 11.30 will be stacked three rows high of cars around the canals based on all the cars that I see passing Amsterdam at 8 o'clock in the morning. So predictive means looking forward to the unexpected and anticipating that with a certain certainty. We'll come back on the definition. But there are companies who do that. There are companies that say, hey, I know that no one in my customer base says, I want to pay five bucks for a cup of coffee instead of 50 cents. But I also know there are serious amounts of needs that they have but justify the five bucks for them. If you, we took for fun the, all the data from Starbucks, from consumer panels 20 years ago when Schultz started, and we looked to all the words. Nobody said, oh, I want to pay five bucks for a cup of coffee. 
What they did say is, I like to have a place to hang out with my friends. I don't want to be in a fast food place anymore to have awful coffee. I don't want to have awful coffee. I like to have a place in between two customers that I visit to sit with my laptop, preferably with a telephone line. These were the days of modems, etc., etc. And all these things, in all that noise, there were signals. And signals within the noise tell me something. They tell there is a need. And if I take that need and I actually take that need forward, I can predict with a certain amount of certainty something. If I do the consistency, so I call the call center, and the call center knows I'm the same guy that was on the internet, was the same guy that came in the store, or I go online on the store website, and I go in the store, and they carry the same item, I have consistency. Do you know how hard that is? That you go in a Gap store, and you say, hey, I saw this uh, jacket on your website. We don't have the jacket. Yeah, you do, it's on your website. We don't have the jacket. It's on your website. Oh, maybe on the website, but not in our store. Do you know it's on your website? No, but we don't have it in store, so I assume it's not on the website. Really? That's how simple consistency is. It's even better when you go to the bank, you know? You have an account person, every week they change because they're dedicated to you. This is the Netherlands, we're being taped. Um, and your account person has no clue what you talked about with the last account person, has no clue that you were actually asking the last week's all kind of information on the internet about mortgages. Well, you logged in with your users, so they know who you are. Doesn't know actually that you have like 30,000 bucks on your saving account and that you're willing to do something with it. They don't know because they don't look consistency. So consistency over touch points and predictive made five times more money. None of them did it by playing defense. None of these companies did it by saving costs and being more efficient. 75% of it did it because they wanted to innovate and grow and do something different. 25% did it because of mandatory regulatory cost control that they made into an opportunity. So if the state says, I must do this with my data, if the state says, I must do this with my customers, how can I make lemonade out of a lemon? Those companies made money. So Let's go to principle number two, analytics trump gut instinct. This is a pharmacist I've been working with. There's a lot of newer model. There's a, um, an issue in the United States that when people get sick, they want over-the-counter medicines. The problem with over-the-counter medicines is you can't produce them fast enough. Everybody who has done chemical engineering knows a chemical plant, a pharmaceutical plant, can only produce so much every day, takes months and months of planning, and they can do a little percentage less or a little percentage more, and that's it. So when somebody, everyone is going to get this week sick in the United States, and they're going to be a rush on Tylenol or Teraflu, you understand all these pharmacists are sold out. But the reality is, this is like airplanes. All airplanes don't land at the same moment at the airport. All people don't get sick at the same time. They're waves. So what we did, we start looking to the four most important languages used in the United States of America. English, Spanish, Brazilian, Portuguese, and Russian. The nickname, as we say, the, the other languages are the languages of the unofficials. Those that wouldn't go to a doctor and therefore have more social communication with each other, like how do you solve this? And we found out when people were getting sick. And we used sources like sick weather. And then we suddenly saw, oh, there's a lot of people saying, I feel sick, I have cough, I have to do this, what do you take? Nobody said, oh, I want to have some Teraflu, or I want to have some Tylenol, or I want to have some Advil. They talked about their needs and their experience and their symptoms. 
But based on that, if you plotted them on the, con on the map of the United States, you could literally see where people were getting ill, where people weren't ill. So if you are that pharmaceutical company, you call your pharmacist and say, hey, Connecticut, you're going to get 50% less pills this week because I'm going to send them to Maine because I don't expect you to need them in two weeks from now and then Maine won't need them and I'll send them to you. You can't produce more, but hell, you can make sure that you make more money because you just make sure you optimize the shelf. You could also have said, oh, I'll just wait till the pharmacist tells me people are getting sick. Because when you call the pharmacist and say, ah, I haven't had sick people here, they'll come 48 hours from now. They'll be there. And in your pharmacist, probably at 8.30 in the evening, just when you're about to close. And no, 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 my gut feeling tells me different. So we deliberately went with the skeptics and we said, look, these are the pharmacists that listened to us. This is what they had. Look, you had empty shelves, right, didn't you? Two empty shelves, three empty shelves, four empty shelves. Beside the fact that it costs you money, how do you think your clients felt when they came there with a sniffing, dripping nose and you didn't even have anything for them? How would you have felt? Right, you already have this headache. It's not from the evening drinking. You're coming in the pharmacist just before closing hours and you're like, darn. It's another night cuffing. So the point is, in the old days, we used to say data is all about a haystack, and I find a needle in a haystack. The problem now is there's a needle in a pile of needles. I will find so much signals that all are true that I need to figure out with limited resources and limited budget. This is the same for a startup. Limited budget and limited resources, which data will have most value for me? It's actually harder. In the old days, we hardly had data. So if you found something, you said, yeah. But now, we have so much data, it's not information overload we suffer from, it's filter failure. So, data sharing is the new black. Barnes & Nobles sells books. I know this is Netherlands, nobody buys books anymore, they illegally, download, sorry, they illegally download them because it's only illegal to upload. But there are still people in this world that like the smell of paper and go through it, you know? And there are still books that are being sold. But ironically, there are two kinds of books that sell. One, the bestseller, they pick up and they're gone. And two, the long tail, a book that doesn't sell much, but sells over time every time. And every store has a profile of people that go there. The moment Barnes & Noble started sharing their sales, their cash register, their POS, with their supplier and said, I'm going to make the data available so you as a publisher can see exactly the same example as before, what, which books should you ship where, which books should be, or types of books should you promote where, but most important, where do you still have a market for this kind of topic or this title? Since they did it, publishers have saved around 17, 18% in cost and have actually launched around 10, 12% more successful titles. Less is more by sharing. So a lot of people are saying, oh, data is the new oil. Let's just pump it up. We're sitting on this gold mine. Every company I talk to and a lot of incubating companies says, oh, there's a lot of public data in the world. There's clinical data, there's medicines, there's interactions, there's patients. Just to take an example, the problem is like oil, you need to figure out what you're going to do it when you pump it up. First, you need the effort to pump it up. That still takes a tower and exploration and geologists and all those things. Same as with data, what pipeline do I take? How do I get it in? How do I get it licensed? How do I save it? How do I secure it? And then suddenly, this piece of oil is very valuable. It gives you NAFTA. This piece of oil only results in a crappy piece of plastic. And this piece of oil is used for the asphalt on the highway. 
Not each part of oil delivers the same return on a dollar. Not each part of data, neither. So you need not only to say what data, but how I'm going to filter it. So principle number four. When I have all this data, how do I tap it? Now, a lot of people say, oh, well, just I won't violate privacy, but everything people put on the internet, social media, comments, magazines, reviews, all that stuff, that's a gold mine. I can tap it, right? It's mine. It's public. Yeah. Let me give you an example. It's very easy on a smartphone nowadays, on an iPhone, to shove a data set from one to another, like you do with a picture, like you do with music. But between companies, that's really hard. So we work with this large retailer in the United States, and we work with two camera suppliers. Now, the problem is these kind of compact cameras have a shelf life of three months. So three months after they're in the store, nobody wants to have them anymore because there's a better camera, there's a better ca camera from the compet competitor, or there's a smarter smartphone that does better. So you have three months to sell something that you probably ordered a year ago because that's how long it takes before you have it. So how do you optimize in which store? So what used to happen with this, with this company, before they started listening to their customer, they were having stores, and people came in the store and they say, hey, I came for this camera, it's not on the shelf, let's go online, let's go to Amazon.com and order it there. There's free Wi-Fi in the store anyway, so let's use it. Or they had too much in the store, and in the end they had to, s had to ditch them for 70% Markdown, which means they made a loss. So they didn't buy more cameras. They started listening to people, to their customers. And while they did that, they heard all kinds of things. Now, when you start listening to your customers, they won't always say, I like the cool pics on the density. Remember the Starbucks example as I gave you? They start talking about what are my needs. I like to have a nice camera for my brother who's graduating next year. There's a great event. There's um, Kings of Leon are going to come in a festival next month here. I'd like to make sure if I smuggle a camera in that's better than my smartphone to make some good pictures or videos, etc., etc. And then we said, who's talking about it? Who has the need to buy? Who has the joy of ownership? Who has the experience? Because I don't know if you guys, if you guys look at my Twitter stream, I talk a lot about the latest Maserati. It's gorgeous. Unfortunately, you will never see me talking about the joy of ownership, sadly nor the pleasure of driving it and all these or the intention to buy right i mean in the words of the famous american philosopher clint eastwood a guy needs to know his limitations so when we looked at this we filtered out of this who were going to buy a camera near our store where should we promote where shouldn't we promote and we came and this is one of the best forecasting model in the industry we came 24% closer to actual we didn't buy more cameras from these suppliers. We made sure these cameras were in places where people wanted them. We made sure that we actually figured out when and where people wanted them by listening to our customer. Now, this camera producer doesn't mind that they don't sell more cameras because if they mark them down, that's also diluting their brand. So they want the best value of the brand. The other part what's really important there is we really listen to the voice of the customer and adapted that to our store. So we optimized distribution, we did social adjusted forecasting, and we were 24% closer to actual. That's 3% more sales directly of cameras. That's 7% more peripheral sales, so covers, memory cards. That is 12% less markdown, and that's 14% less promotions. 
do you know that a retailer would kill to get 1% more sales? I don't mean kill as a matter of speech, I mean kill, right? Go to Albert Einstein and says, who would you kill for 1% more profit? And they say, oh, wait, wait, what? I mean, they would line up the volunteers. Last value. Value will be created for individuals. We still think there is business to business. I'm going to visit a company. But you have a LinkedIn. And you have a Facebook with embarrassing pictures from when you were a student in your fraternity. And you have been tweeting some things you probably should never have been tweeting. And you were last week having such a phenomenal in-house seminar with three or four other companies. It was so much fun. And then you come to this company because you want to pitch me something. You want to sell me something. You want to become my supplier. And I know what your clients and your customers' customers think of you, of your customers and of you. I know who you have been visiting the last weeks. Thanks to your Foursquare, I even know where you have been. And it's not even a violation of privacy because you showed it in my face publicly. And you think you're representing your business when you enter the building? Because I'm negotiating with you, not with an abstract company. B2B doesn't exist anymore. It's all P2P. Now, an example of a company that got it, Netflix. Netflix was, a few years ago, a video rental service. They were a smart video rental service. You didn't have to go back to them. They had self-destructing tapes, or then you could mail back DVDs, and then they had self-destructing DVDs. You know, take the vacuum off, and within two days, it was gone. Phenomenal. Brilliant. But it was still the same concept. You want the film, you rent it from me, you'll pay me money, but you don't pay per movie, you pay per subscription, whatever. And then they became digital, and this was like digital video rental. And suddenly they said, you know, I'm fed up with doing everybody's broadcast. What can I, as Netflix, do to actually get more clients? And Netflix knew every movie you started and stopped. You know, this uh, for the guys here. For the guys with a girlfriend here. For the guys with a sappy girlfriend who likes chick flicks. There are girls on this world, and of course not your girlfriend, but my wife is one of them, and I hope she never sees this tape, <laughs> who take one scene out of a chick flick and replay it over and over and over again the whole evening. We have to like, can we get over it now? Please, you know? And that says so much about you, because it's not the whole movie that you looked, it's that scene. Or it's that movie that you started and didn't stop. Or it's that movie that you started and the moment you left and you had your iPhone with you, in the train you kept looking at, so you were really addicted to it. And when they knew that, they said, hmm, let's predict, not extrapolate. Because extrapolate is I look at your friends list and I tell you, look, these are songs you might like. Predict this, none of your friends knows this song, but you actually might like this. Extrapolate, people who have codes like this, like pens like this. Predict, you might like this sweater. You can make a business out of this. Do we do an auction or? 60 bucks for the sweater, more, anyone more than 60 bucks? So what they did, they say, what would people really like? They say, well, at the moment, at the moment, we think we score best with political drama. Is there content we could use? Well, there's one political drama that we have never run on the US television, a British drama from the 80s called House of Cards. Great, ticket box, bang. So they listed like 10, 15 potential scripts. Then they listed a series of actors, Kevin Spacey being number one on the list, by the way, and a series of directors. And Kevin Spacey had, at that moment, knowing nothing, pitched House of Cards to all the American ne uh, networks, and they said, 
let's do a pilot and we'll see afterwards. And Kevin is like, no, 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 you don't get it. This is a really complex story. It's only for 0.5% of the American audience who will get this, who will basically understand the length of the dialogue. It's a little bit like this, this session. And you need to be, this is complex. You need to build up the characters. You can't just do a pilot and then look if people like it or not. You have to do a whole series of nothing. And none of them want to do it. And he come, came in with Netflix. And said, oh, Kevin, great. Yes. Um, Robin Wright is going to be your uh, fellow actress. We were thinking of David Finch. We'll take two seasons. It is the first time that a rental company gets a Grammy award ever. It is, at this moment, is Netflix the number one television channel in the United States with average 87 minutes a viewer. That's more than any other network. Because they listened. And they saw every individual as an individual. And they didn't violate your privacy. Like, I know your girlfriend looked at this scene 14 times over again. You might want to rent this movie as well. No, they have a broader recommendation program, and they don't do it in your face. So what is so difficult now? Well, what we see is that you don't do this without talent. You need talent. You need people that are called like data scientists. And the problem is if you did operations research, or you did statistics, or you did econometrics, you're not a data scientist yet. You have all the potential. Because a good data scientist knows his business. Are we doing shipping? Are we doing merchandising? Are we doing banking? So you understand what the important data in a business is. You understand mathematical tools and mathematical approaches and algorithms. And you can articulate it in two, three sentences. Because I know a lot of, of nerds that I've worked with that would step in the elevator to the CEO of a company and said, you know, it's growing up. I looked at our sales numbers, we were screwing up. You're doing something wrong. Do you think that's a career-improving remark? <laughs> it doesn't matter that you're right. It doesn't matter you have the data to back it, right? What you need to do is make sure that you have the diplomatic skills to articulate it simple and one or two lines, to understand the tools and, and techniques you need to access and manipulate and visualize the data, and that you understand what parts drive your business. Now, this is the interesting part. What I see is that companies that are successful make more decisions based on data, have a formal career path for their data, and 70% see growth as the reason why they do it. The top five startups that I've seen in at the last six months, one of them is already stock noted, are only data. They take data from other companies, they combine it, they enrich it. In this case, one of the companies I've been working with does clinical medical data, so they standardize from all the hospitals and pharmaceutical companies the clinical medical data. They make sure that they have very watertight stuff that they will never be caught in, in dealing with privacy issues. They have the permission as the only party to go over all the data sets of all the hospitals and pharmaceutical companies and to come with conclusions that none of the individual parties could have been doing. And they sell the enriched conclusion without violating the detailed data. And they're making 300 million at this moment. Six months ago, stock noted. Two years ago, started. Right? This is a bunch of nerds, by the way, and two really articulated, brilliant women around them that can hide the nerds in the background. I'm one of these nerds, by the way. I, I, I mean, it's a, you know, it's a sort of revenge from, from high school, basically.
So let's, let's go back, right? What does it take? Let's say you're a starting company, not, not a scratch starting company, but a company that just said, got a great idea, we're now at six, seven people. What do you need to do? Well, whatever you do, it's pretty handy to have a platform. It doesn't matter if the platform is in the cloud or in your, in your backpack or whatever. And there's a paper with this one in it, which I'll, I'll send the link. You need to have trust in your own data. You know, when you take, um, let's say, Jorgen, can I have you here for a second? Sure. You don't have to use your microphone. Let's say you read in one of the Dutch gossip press that Paris Hilton has a steamy affair with Jorgen here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Would you trust that information? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you see images on CNN of Paris leaving a nightclub with Jorgen. Would you trust that data? Now you see an interview in the New York Times, a, mag a, a journal paper <coughs> noted for their fact-finding and immaculate journalistic integrity. Would you trust that more? So the point is, can I trust the source of my data? That source could be another company, that source could be one of your co-workers that gives you a sloppy spreadsheet, or that could be data that you acquire outside. Just because everybody is bitching the plane is delayed doesn't mean that the plane is delayed. It means that everybody's bitching that the plane is delayed. It means that the perception. Perception is nice, but if you're an airline, it's delayed when you have called it delayed and not a second before. So do I have a platform? Do I have trust? Do I have funding? This is the first layer. If you're going to do anything to make data, whether you are going to sell data, you're going to enrich data, you're going to make an app that pulls anybody else's data out, or you're going to help companies to improve themselves, that's the stuff you need. Then what really would help is the value proposition. What is this stuff going to do with me? Well, it's going to help you to be 22% faster to market. It's going to help you to have 2% less storage costs. It's going to help you to, if you can't articulate what the value proposition is, that's a really great incubating startup idea what you're going to do with, with all that medical data. So how it's going to help me as a doctor? It's going to give you better insight, right? So it's going to save me time, it's going to save me costs, it's going to make the patient faster, better. What's going to do for me? The bulk of the ideas I see in startup don't have it. You know what's even scarier? The bulk of the top 500 don't always have this. So we look to those nine levers, as we call them, these nine levers that actually are essential to turn data into dollars, to use data, but it's big data or small data. Because big data is just a word. What is big for a small company is nothing for a mid-sized company. What is big for an insurance company is nothing for a bank. What's big for a bank is nothing for a telco. What's big for a telco is nothing, nothing for a research institute. So size, yes, guys, size matters, but let's see it and look at it in perspective, right? So the point is, can I rely on the data? And what tempo do I get it? You know. And do I have ownership and accountability? Do we have rules? When I come in a company, doesn't matter how small or big it is, they lack what they call common language. You know, I see a sales report and it's like, um, so is that sales, uh, that column sales, is that with or without returns? Is that with or without cancellations? Is that with or, and then you ask it to five salespeople, you get six answers. If you can't even start your company on a common language, how do you think it's gonna be when it's with 20, 30 people, right? How do you think it's going to be with 400,000 people? Now, it's nice that you have a promise here, but do you also measure that the promise came through? I promise you that basically you will get 2% cost reduction in your customer management. I promise you that you will sell 10% more than you used to sell. Is that true? So, and the real mature companies, they actually have people that sponsor 
that invest in tech in expertise in people and culture. So there's two kinds of startups that I see, the pure incubator startups, but it's also the venture capitalists or the joint venture startups. So what we see, this is not difficult. I take some analytics platform, I build some capabilities, and I start enriching it. Bang. Every idiot should be able in three to six months to get it going. Problem number two is, now I need to accelerate it and I need to show results. If I have investors or I have clients, I need to show results. If I'm going to give you better travel advice, I need to show you that you got better travel advice. It's really nice that you have the, the feeling, you know, I have a really good feeling with this travel advice. But when someone else comes with another cool app or a cool agency, you're gone. You don't believe me? There's only 22% left in the Netherlands of the travel advice companies and agencies that were here five years ago. Oh, but five years ago we had a trusted relationship. My clients always came to me for advice. Yeah, da. There's a magazine or internet now. There's an app for that. So can you show there is a justification and a result, right? Fact-based and free. Can you say, and this is not for everybody, but more and more companies say, I am not selling products. I am selling the continuously benchmarking of it. Do I sell cameras to a retailer? Or do I make sure they can optimize the shelf to the fullest? You have to figure out what business you're in at such moments. So principle one, we all create value. Principle two, analytics trump gut instinct. Principle number three, data sharing is the new black. Principle number four, social network, social data is part of the production line. And number five, everything is P2P. Now, where does this bring us? I, I promised you in the beginning to come back. So technology is changing too disruptive. And this is where we're going to close with a promise and an opportunity. We played Jeopardy three years ago. We didn't do it because we found it cool to make a game computer. We wanted to show that technology now existed that could learn like you and I do. Now, I, I, I for reasons of purposes, I'm going to take someone of my generation, sir. Sirs. <laughs> Bohemian Rhapsody. Number one hit December 1975 or number one hit January 1976? Right, and I don't... No, no, you, you, you don't have to give me the answer. The point is none of you has a list in their head. Number one hits, year, artist, date. No one does, right? If, if there's someone here, then we need to have a serious conversation in the back. But what we do is we reconstruct. We say, who was a... You weren't even born in 75, but who was I dating? Did I still live with my parents? What car did I drive? And we slowly reconstruct. I could do it with you guys in, gang in, in gangling style. You know, when was the first time that you heard that horrible song? But the point is, you don't have a list. You reconstruct. That's exactly what we wanted to show. So this piece of technology has no database, ladies and gentlemen. There's no Q&A list. There's no database. All the data comes in as it is. So I take a copy of the New York Times, plop. Take a copy of Wikipedia, plop. Copy of the Internet Movie Database, plop. Take a copy of the National Enquirer, a magazine in the US that makes the Dutch gossip magazine seem like literature, plop. Take a copy of whatever, and it's there. All the work, collected work of Shakespeare, sure. The American Library of Congress, sure. 15 terabyte more? Yes, 15 terabyte more. And it's there in its original format. And the beast you're going to see is going to answer a question on natural language based on confidence. I'm not here to promote a piece of technology. I'm here to show you where we're going. Because this technology is not programmed. 
This technology doesn't know the answer. This technology starts reading the question by 200 million book pages a second, like you and I would rapidly find something. Like it is trained to find information rapidly, not like a search engine, but in context. You know, in a search engine, you say, who's Mark Teeling? Bang, you get the answer. Then you say, what's, what's Mark Teeling's height? Or what is his height? And the search engine had no clue that you were just talking about me. You go to Siri, you say, text my wife, I love her. And your wife gets a text message, I love her. And you have to explain who she is. <laughs> really, people. So let's, uh, I'm going to show you a little of Jeopardy. Remember, the guy who's going to try to push the buzzer here is, gonna be, is the guy who won most round ever and has almost a neural implant to give the answer before he knows it. The guy here won most money, and in the middle is 2,800 PlayStations. Let's start. Hello? Why doesn't this work? Who touched my laptop? Ah. Excellent. Let's do this. And here it comes. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for being here. What do you say we play Jeopardy? Let's get right into the Jeopardy round. These categories, a man, a plane, a canal, Erie, Chicks Dig Me, children's book titles, My Michelle, MC5, and finally, vocabulary. Ken, you're in the first position. Please make a selection. Uh, I've never said this on TV. Chicks Dig Me for 200, please, Jimmy. <laughs> Kathleen Kenyon's excavation of this city mentioned in Joshua showed the walls had been repaired 17 times. Watson. What is Jericho? Correct. 400 same category. This mystery author and her archaeologist hubby dug in hopes of finding the lost Syrian city of Urkesh. Watson. Who is Agatha Christie? Correct. Same category, 600. At the Olduvai Gorge in 1959, she and hubby Lewis found a 1.75 million-year-old Australopithecus boise-eyed skull. Watson? Who is Mary Leakey? You're right. 800, same category. Harriet Boyd Haas was the first woman to discover and excavate a Minoan settlement on this island. Watson? What is Crete? Yes. Let's finish Chicks Dig Me. Now, the first time you hear Chicks Dig Me, most of us, right guys, would think this is about women who fancy me. And you need the first three, four words to figure out this is going to be about something else. And you need seven or eight words to figure out, oh, it's female archaeologists, right? That's what you call context. When I talk about Hilton, Paris, and Paris Hilton, they're not the same. Paris Hilton is the socialite that most of you thought about. Hilton Paris is the, is the hotel in the capital of France. The sad thing is, if you want to have a romantic weekend in the Hilton in Paris, you have to wait to 46 pages of Google before you find it, because the socialite is there. Use quotes. So, <coughs> what really happened here, right, is that Watson plays with a concept called confidence. I read 200 million pages a second. I get all kind of, what does this question mean? Hilton, Paris, Paris, Hilton, is it about socialite? Is it about hotel? And then I'm going to get the context. Okay, it's going to be a hotel. Then I'm going to go, and I have hundreds of variations of the question. I have thousands of potential sources where I'm going to find it. I have 10,000 of potential answers and millions of variations. I'm going to balance that like an aircontrophic tower and say, I have most confidence in this answer. And if it's on this line, the threshold, I won't answer. Now, 
let's recap this. It takes human language. It has access to hundreds of raw, 15 terabyte raw documents. Has no database. Has a corpus and reads 200 million book pages a second. And it doesn't come with the answer is black or blue, but it says oh, it's probably this, but it could be that too. Imagine sitting in your car and you ask your GPS, what's the fastest way to Rotterdam? And it wouldn't say this, but it would say, well, I have three or four options. Actually, given the current situations, I think you should drive over Utrecht, even if it's, if it's longer. That's another kind of dialogue, right? It's what a doctor does. You come into a doctor and you say, doctor, I have pain here, I have pain there. The doctor does a triage process and says, well, there's a high chance that you might have a shoulder injury. There's a second chance you might have a lymphoma on your uh, collarbone. There's a ta-ta-ta-ta-ta. And they start balancing. It's the same process. So we started this with medical. And I'm not going to do that now. But for those of you interested, there's a TED speech that, that I did. You just type in TLink and TED on YouTube. And I go much deeper on the medical case. Just to give you one little clue, the average doctor in the United States spends five hours a month in reading his or her professional literature. I spend more time in a month on the New York Times. That's probably what they do too, by the way. So you go to the doctor and this piece of technology listens with you. This is not science fiction. We have been doing this the last two, three years with Memorial Sloan Kettering in Austin, with MD Anderson, uh, with Cedar Sinai, the six American hospitals in oncology and, and cardiology start working with this. This is not science fiction. Science fiction is that you have this technology and you say, Star Trek, right? Computer, how many people in the room? And the answer is like 62, but only four intelligent. I mean, that, that's, that's sci-fi. This stuff is there. Because we're going to get less doctors. By the time you're my age, you're going to have a third less doctors, a third less medical trained male and female nurses, and you're going to have three times the cost of healthcare because I'm still alive. You like that guy or girl that treats you to give a rapid answer, right? <laughs> so what are we doing now? Three years later, from having this thing as a big semi-supercomputer, we opened up an ecosystem. So we started the last three years, first with medical, and then with, with um, banks and telecommunications privately to use the technology. And now it's an app in an app store. So there's an enormous cloud with Watson in it, and people can say, do I want to deliver and create an app? Do I want to create content? Do I want to create data that can be used by others? Like, do I want to make a book reader or do I want to make a book? Do I want to make a music player or do I want to make the music? Right? You have choices. <coughs> and then basically, when you come with an app idea, you say, I have an app. It will use Watson. Watson will take data from the market. It will take some data that is proprietary. It will take some data maybe from my clients. And I have a developer cloud. Participation in the cloud is free. Submitting the app is free. The moment the app is accepted is the moment the counter meters start running. Now, you know what's so cool? 20 years ago, IBM was the king of propriety. And I'm not sharing this to promote IBM. I'm sharing that, that it's innovate or die. 20 years ago, all our heart and software was ours, and nothing else would work with it. And now there is a piece of technology based on open standards that we say this is so big, we can't do this ourselves. We need to share this to the world and let everybody have their piece in it. And we have $100 million venture capital for startup building application using this, what they call cognitive technology, technology that thinks like a human being. 
<coughs> and there are commercial companies coming on it. But we also have a challenge for proposals. We have an incubator space in New York where people will work with my team or with our research teams on this. Do we do that out of the greatness of our heart? No. We want this to accelerate. Now, the best example is very simple. When I stood for our board and I took the medical examples and I asked them to open it up and invest, one of our board members asked my colleagues, so why would we do that? And I said, like, well, I turn 50 next year, you're 55, you're pushing 60, you want this stuff to coming seven, eight years available, right? Because in the end, <coughs> it's still all about ourselves, right? It's the Kim Kardashian. Enough about you, let's, enough about me, let's talk about you, what do you think about me, right? That, that's the so I've been tweeting last, uh, yesterday and today about it. We've opened it up. <coughs> this is not science fiction. This is something we make accessible for everybody else. Now, let me show you in the end how this kind of stuff works. So we've been working with other incubator companies, and I want to show you this as an inspiration. There's a company called Fluid. Fluid is a small startup. They're now in the second stage. They started three years ago. And they, they were the one that for Nike came with a customizable shoe app. They came with apps that you could customize a product in. So it was an empty shell, you, and they would wireframe it so you could put uh, Brooks Brothers suits, Nike shoes, etc. <coughs> and they came to us. They say, hey, we want to do this. And they came with such a good pitch. You know those nine factors, like what platform will I use, what data will I have, how will I treat it, how do I make sure that people trust it, what are the results, what are the metrics, all those. They totally had a phenomenal good business case. They convinced us, they swayed us off the table with a rock-solid story. They thought about what data do I use, how do I visualize it, how will I share it, how will I predict it, and how do I make it human without it in your face carry. So this is the app. And they came with their first client. First client is the North Face. You know the North Face, the outdoor suits? Okay. So they showed this this January at NRF. NRF is the largest <coughs> retail and uh, consumer good event in the States, probably in the world. Now this, can we get some less light here so this is readable? <coughs> because this is just a screenshot of the app. The app is like any other app. This is just an iPad, right? So I come to this, and I say, let's go to. And suddenly says, well, we actually have a compass, a gear guide. OK, I go there. How can I help you? Ask a, a question like you ask a friend. No speech, just words. Just type it in. Let's not have all the accent crap. So I type in, well, I'm gearing up for a 40-day backpacking trip. What equipment do I need? Have you ever tried to type this in in Google? Have you ever tried to type this in, in Amazon? Right? <coughs> well, the system says, okay, these are some cold weather packs, these are some backpacks, here's a list of gear suited for 40 day backpack trip. What would you like to start with? <coughs> Can you show me technical packs? Solely by asking the question, I'm either somebody who's going to spend a shitload of money on something he doesn't need, or I really know what I'm talking about. Right? You don't know yet, but. <coughs> now, there is no pre programmed dialogue. Every time something is said, it goes back and starts thinking, like, what should I say back? So here's a list in several categories. And now I type in, well, what technical pack is needed for an expedition to Fitzroy, Patagonia in winter? Has anybody been to the south of Chile? Because, ladies and gentlemen, I lived there in 1991 to 1992, and I can tell you it is freaking cold. <laughs> There's no cell phone or even satellite phone reach. 
There's not even a train that brings you there. You're out there on your own and you're damn stupid to be there. So by asking this question again, we are talking with a suicidal candidate or somebody who's really advanced. <clears throat> so we continue and we show all kinds of stuff. And we say, well, you might want to look for an ABS, an avalanche airbag system. Have you ever typed ABS in, in Google? You get 200 pages of car stuff. There's no avalanche airbag system. <clears throat> Sadly, and they're so light and nice. So can you tell me more about ABS technology? Sure, let me go outside my company and bring you all kinds of videos, etc., but also some remarks and also some evaluations that other people have. Well, I like the Prophet 65. How is it rated? Instead of me coming with opinion, let me show you all kinds of magazines, etc., the good, the bad, and the ugly of what people say about the product. And I give you a balanced view. Not just what people rate on my website, but what the world says about it. Because I want you to go to Patagonia, to Fitzroy, with the greatest amount of comfort. And don't bother me if it didn't work, because I, I told you so. That's what cognitive technology is about. Human language, machine learning, learning from every interaction, confidence, and talking as a friend. So let's wrap this up and go to question. This is not about technology. It's about a journey. And whether you're a startup or an existing company, small company or big company, it's really about the choices that you make. How will you create value? For your customers, for your employees, for your suppliers, and therefore for yourself. So I don't know if you want to do this. This is normally what I do when I go to my clients. I said, so let's play high, low high. You know low high? You sit at the dining table in an American family, and you say, so tell me low high of your day. What were the free crappiest part of your day that you really want to get rid of? And what were the best part of your day? So you hope that your children end on a high note. So let's do this with stuff, because every of these seminars, even this one today, in 48 hours, the bulk you have forgotten. You remember one joke, one remark, and at best, one wise lesson out of today. That's it. If you don't do anything with it, today was really nice entertainment, like going to the cinema, but it's gone, 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 gone. Unless you do something with it. So I asked them, said, so what are the three reasons you haven't been doing this? What's the three reason that the coming 48 hours you're not going to do anything with it? That's what I ask my clients. You see a lot of people getting uncomfortable then, by the way. And then I say, well, when you go tomorrow to your boss, what are the three reasons to get started? Where is the money? What is the breakthrough you would do? Will data make a difference? Nah, I don't need data. I just have a cab company, really. So you don't want people to get a faster cab and choose your cab over someone else. You don't want people to know where their cab is so they can call your call center 45 times where you're there. You don't want people to actually have an easiness of paying so they come more often to you and actually they feel and they start promoting you. You don't want it. Good. Then you don't need data. So my motto for you guys, let's then go to question mode. Do something every day that scares you. Change and comfort don't go together. If it's really scary, run like hell after you do it. <laughs>